0: Well, I, like I said, this is a, about prayer because we're studying a prayer this morning, and uh, it's, it's not probably a debatable thing to say that uh, prayer is is difficult for us for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that we don't know how to pray. I mean, isn't that why Jesus' own disciples asked him, "Hey, would you teach us how to pray?" Right? That wouldn't that be one of our questions that we would ask? We just, what do you do when you sit there? And you say, okay, I'm going to pray. Like, what do, you, what do you do there? And there's levels of it. So if you think of uh, prayer as like a professional sport, you know, most of us probably feel like we're still playing t-ball. And then you read a prayer like Hannah's and you're like, man, she is, uh, she's a Hall of Famer. And that's true. But that's okay. Every Hall of Famer started with t-ball or, or stick ball in the street or something like it. And so it's okay to begin small. And it's okay to read a prayer like Hannah's and go, whoa, that's intimidating. Could I ever pray like that? Uh, Well, we can grow in it. Okay, we can grow in it and make our way through little leagues and get into the minors and eventually at least be a bench player in the majors. Like you you can progress and you can get there. And this prayer, I think, is going to elevate how we pray. So some of us need to start praying. Some of us need to pray more often. Probably most of us need to pray better, and this will be a way to help us with that. Now, if you remember last week, we covered the opening, the, the, the first chapter of this book, and we covered the, the story of, of Hannah, who was barren and unable to have children. And then the plot thickens when her the, the other wife of her uh, husband was having children and was letting her know about it, right? And every time they approached the temple to worship together and these families came together, Elkanah had a wife with a family and a wife barren and no children. And Penina would harass Hannah about that barrenness. Now, if you're steeped in Scripture and you're reading Scripture, you realize, wow, this barrenness, this barren woman thing, God doing something amazing through a woman who's unable to have children, seems to be repeated an awful lot the woman who's unable to have a baby god uses that woman to bring someone into the world that is going to change the course of history advance god's kingdom purposes And so you're right to see patterns like that if you're seeing patterns like that. So we talked about that last time. She brings the prayer to the Lord. She makes a vow. He will be yours. He'll serve your kingdom. He'll serve your purposes. This isn't about me. This is about you. So she elevates the prayer to your will be done. Your kingdom come. And then when God does it, that's exactly what God does. He does it to advance his own kingdom. And we get the rise of uh, Samuel, as we'll see going forward in this book But today, we see the result, her reflection on God doing that for her, and she lifts up a prayer. And it's more than just one line, and it's not just a, thanks, God, I knew you would. There's that in it, but it's beefy, and it's robust. Okay, so we're going to to be schooled in prayer by Hannah. And taking it out of chapter 1, we realize that our prayers if we're praying the way Hannah's praying, and if we're picking up on the cue that we're supposed to be picking up on just in this opening sequence in 1 Samuel, if we're learning anything about prayer, we're learning, learning that when we pray, we should situate the things that we're praying about. And let's be honest, we're mostly praying about trials. We don't often pray about the awesome stuff that happened, which we should. We should be thankful for the great things that happened. But what really drives us to our knees? Trials. And, and that's normal. And that's what happened with Hannah. But what we're learning from her is that the prayers about our trials that we pray to God should be situated in God's larger story. We should take this trial that we're experiencing, and when we take it to God, we take it to him by putting it in a bigger context rather than just me, 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 me. This is bothering me, so remove this from me because my, my kingdom, my story. But nor is it accurate to say, forget your trials. Your personal trials don't matter. You only pray for evangelism, the gospel to go out, big gospel themes, but you're not allowed to pray for your small stuff. What you're seeing in Hannah's prayer is she takes her smaller story, and to her it's not small. It's painful and it's difficult. She's being harassed for it. And she's seeing how it fits in this bigger pattern of how God operates and then elevating that prayer into this bigger thing of how God operates. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I know because you're still playing t-ball, and I'm still struggling with it too, but this passage is trying to elevate us to see a sort of a new layer on prayer that maybe we we need to be exposed to, and maybe that's why we'll eventually in the future look back on our prayers as a younger Christian and go, wow, God listened to that. (laughs) That's okay. Okay. But we're going to let this passage stretch us a little bit. And I think that's what we see Hannah doing in this passage. All right, here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to interrupt this prayer. I want to read it straight through. We're going to go to just verse, through verse 10 today. I think in, that we had promised through verse 11, but we'll pick up on verse 11 next time. It's okay. But we're going to go through verse 10, her prayer, and then I'll back up and then walk you through it. And, and we'll see how this can instruct how we pray today. Here we go, right at the top of 1 Samuel 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowls of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might. Shall a man prevail? The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I am so thankful this prayer was recorded for us. And I love the, the heat in the prayer, the intensity of the prayer after it was answered. She doesn't just cool off and go, okay, well, I guess. And she, she, she brings this, this prayer to the Lord after he proved himself worthy. And it's not just a prayer of thanks. In fact, I don't think we covered anything there that's a, a clear, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And it's great to pray Thanksgiving prayers. We see that throughout the Bible. Don't get me wrong. But it's just interesting to me that she's still not just chewing on like, thank you, thank you, you did this thing. But the prayer, is, it's so big. Many scholars think she's just repeating a known prayer at the time. Like it's not her prayer. She's just using it for her purpose now and her, and her uh, desire to praise the Lord now. I mean, that's possible. But I think a lot of that's driven by, well, how can a barren woman in the middle of Israel come up with such a theological prayer? Maybe we're just theological wimps. And maybe... We underestimate women of the faith, which is dumb. Because throughout the Bible, God continues to show up the guys with what the women can say, what they pray. They were the first ones at the tomb. They were the first ones that believed in the resurrection. And the dudes are still walking around going, I don't think that's true. Well, we have a lot to learn from Hannah's prayer this morning. So let's start at the top and recognize, again... What, I'm, what I was arguing from last time is that she takes her smaller issue and she situates it in God's bigger universal plan. Who he is, what he's like, what he does, the, the big overarching thing. She wants her story to be a, a puzzle piece in that bigger picture. So she's not doing this. She's doing this, right? Okay. But if you look at verse 1, it doesn't necessarily seem like that right off the bat. She's upset with Panina, She's upset about all this stuff. And uh, now she got God's answer in having her, her baby, And she takes him to the temple and dedicates him. So the whole thing, that part of the story is over, right? And then she says in verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. I love this. She's celebrating this, and she's celebrating in the Lord. My horn, my strength, the horn is a symbol of strength. We saw that in the book of Revelation. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I, I do have strength in the Lord. Even though I was weak in my barrenness, I have strength in the Lord. And my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hmm. I wonder who she's thinking about there. Probably the jerk that used and leveraged her own children to berate and belittle Hannah. That's not a mystery what she's thinking about there. She's not talking about Uh, somebody that mugged her. She's not talking about, you know, a boss that fired her. She's talking about Penina. That's what she's talking about. We just came out of chapter 1. So when you look at it at first, you're like, well, okay, I don't think she's putting it in a bigger story. I think she's channeling this thing that's happening to her. Well, obviously she's thinking about the thing that happened to her. But there are some clues right there in verse 1, I think, that need to, we need to give it a double take and look again and go, I don't think it's just about being harassed by her husband's other wife. I don't want to linger here long because I want to press through, but the first one is enemies plural. Hmm, that's interesting. Enemies plural. Was Peninnah one? Yeah, but she's one of a pattern in other words, those who take strength in the Lord rather than taking strength in something else. So, with Panina, she took her strength in her virility. Is that? If that's the wrong word, just edit that later, uh, somebody. Uh, but you know what I mean? Her ability to be fruitful in a physical way, her, to, to be productive. Panina's taking strength in that. And Hannah couldn't. She only could take strength in what the Lord can do. You're over all things. You're over the womb. You can open them, close them. You can do what you want. And I took strength in that. And enemies, plural, hate that. At when, when Israel is mocked, you're like, oh, where's your God? Stupid Israel, where's your God? Right? And that's why David was upset about the Goliath thing. David wasn't just using an opportunity to show off his slingshot skills, as we're going to see eventually when we get to that chapter. Uh, a little bit of a spoiler, but it's like David and Goliath. Hello. Everybody knows that story. But, but David is upset because this Philistine mocks God and mocks Israel for trusting in God rather than in height, stature, weaponry, and armor, right? Well, that, that's what Hannah is saying. Hannah's saying, I exalt in you rather than in something else. My horn, my strength, is exalted only in you, because I couldn't exalt it myself. I can't exalt it with my own human means. And therefore, the tables have turned, haven't they? Now the people that were deriding me, I deride them, not just Penina, but anyone who casts aspersions on the trustworthiness of our Lord. He is faithful, however he proves it. He proved it to me in my small story, but he proves it to other people in their small stories, and he proves it in the bigger story. He proves it over and over and over again, and that's what I'm exulting in Hannah saying. Not just my one situation, but enemies, plural. Anytime there's an attack on the name and the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of our God, he shows that actually those who take trust in, in him are the ones that are vindicated in the end, and enemies are made to look like fools. That's why she launches into this whole next thing. And by the way, doesn't verse 1 sound like many psalms you've read? And we instinctively do that with the psalms, right? Oftentimes, we read a psalm, and it's talking about enemies and getting chased and stuff. We're like, I think that's David, but it doesn't say David. Maybe it's David, but maybe it's somebody else. How could it be somebody else? Well, is David the only person that had enemies? Is David the only person that trusted God for faithfulness? Is David the only one that was mocked for following God? No, those psalms were written as patterns. In other words, here are songs that people are going to sing forever. Forever. Why? Because forever, throughout eternity, throughout uh, uh, the history of mankind, people that faithfully follow God are going to be derided by enemies, and they need psalms like this to lean on to say, Lord, you be my strength, you be my refuge, you be my salvation. Okay? And then, of course, it's interesting that she used the word salvation. It's like, okay, he let you have a baby. Salvation? Like, get a grip. It's bigger than just having a baby. It was deliverance in that immediate instance for her, but she's using words, enemies, plural, uh, horn, strength, taking the Lord, exalting him, and then salvation. These are big, like, psalm themes, okay? Now, when she launches into the rest of her prayer, we see that uh, she does what I was talking about earlier where she takes her her situation, her personal harassment, she puts it in the larger story by praying for vindication. That's what we got right off the top in verse 1. And then we see that her vindication is true not because she's right. Her vindication is true because these bigger uh truths about who God is those are true so the rest of her prayer is not saturated with stuff about her baby and I got to wean him and the time I got to spend with him how he's going to serve in the house there's nothing there she it's all God word stuff you are like this you are like that this is what you're proving by doing this for me you're proving this bigger thing your glory your honor we see that in two through eight. God proves that he has a matchless ability to turn our situation from trial to victory, okay? That's what he does. That's what he's like. That's God's favorite pattern. And so when we pray for our small stuff, we, at, we take the small harassment and we put it in this bigger picture of God. You are a God who likes to switch things around and take the person that seems powerful like Goliath and smash him down and take the little no-name shepherd and elevate him. This is what you like to do. You like to reverse fortunes. And you see those reversals in 2 through 8. There's none holy like God, meaning he's set apart. There's none like him. There's none beside him. There's no rock like him, someone to depend on, someone to build on, not sand, shifting sands, not slippery water, a rock that you can depend on. And she's saying, you can take it to the bank that God is like this. This is what he likes to do. This is what he does. This is how he is. And any time you take your situation and pray it before the Lord, you know that you can plug it, ask him to plug it into this bigger thing because this bigger thing is always true. And how that bigger thing operates is lifting up the lowly and throwing down the exalted. There's none like him. He's a rock, verse 3. Well, who do you think she's thinking of mainly there? Talk no more so very proudly and let not arrogance come from your mouth. Well, these are the enemies. These are the people that say believing in God is dumb, following him is stupid, going to church is foolish. These people are arrogant. I don't need God. I don't want God. The Bible is dumb. I can come up with my own rules. And then she said, but what you're missing is that the Lord is the God of knowledge. I mean, there's a tremendous understatement. He knows everything. How dare you think that you know more than God or that you know a better way? And then in that knowledge, he weighs all of our actions. And when he weighs our actions, there's some stuff he really doesn't like, and there's some stuff that he really likes. And he tends to elevate the stuff he likes and smash down the stuff he doesn't like. You with me? Okay, so she's taking her problem, and she's going, I've got this problem, but I'm going to plug it into this bigger story of how God operates. How does God operate? He operates by smashing down the stuff he doesn't like and lifting up the stuff he does like. Check those out as, he goes forward, as she goes forward in the prayer. Verse 4, you've got mighty people with weapons and armors, armory and, and and tanks and bullets and capitals and borders and you've got anything you can name there right she's saying bows as it represents in their ancient context military might he breaks them. where's your bow now he breaks them. but then what about feeble people weak people they don't have bows they don't know how to fight they don't have any strength all they have is the invitation to call on the Lord for help. Those are the people he gives strength to. The feeble bind on strength. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. This is a person who had more bread than he knew what to do with. And now, now where is he? Can I I cut your lawn for for a piece of bread? That's where he is now, after God's done with him. What about somebody who's hungry? Well, he turns it around and they're not hungry anymore. Notice how she channels her own story. The baron has borne seven. Now some have said, well, if you look forward in the story, she actually bears six. Ooh, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's actually seven. Y'all were with me in the book of Revelation, right? Seven means something, and she's not being literal. There's a completeness here. And then to just to prove it, she's. She who has many children is forlorn. How is the person with many children bereft if she already has the many children? How can you reverse that, God? You, already, you can't make her barren. She already has this many kids. Well, any number of things. They turn out to be losers. They turn out to be disrespecters of their parents. They, you know, they, they, she had many kids, but when they have Thanksgiving dinner, not many people around the table because they don't like mom and dad. You know, who knows? That, there's a kind of grief where you've lost your kids, even though you had kids. Sadly, that's often true in homes that are broken, homes that have disregarded God's instructions on how to raise a family. And he shatters the strength of the wealthy who just think, all I have to do is throw money at my kids and put them in the best schools, and I've got this family. Uh, And you know what? Before you know it, they're all fighting over the leftover crumbs that you have left after you died. But the one who is barren understands that children are a gift of the Lord. And if he's going to give me one, I need to make sure I do it his way and that it's God's kingdom first, and I do it God's way, and those are the ones that God lifts up. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. I know this is offensive, but it's true. We We have no right to breath. Breath is God's. He breathed it into us. He can give it. He can take it. Now, we might not like that at first. Well, why wouldn't I like that? I want to be my own man. I want to do what I want. I don't like the fact that even the breath that I draw is completely contingent and dependent on God's decision to let me draw that breath. That's a deep humility. That's a deep humility to be in that place. But she, Hannah just straight up says it. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings people down to Sheol. He can bring people up. He raises them up. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Okay, so we push through a lot there, but what you're noticing there is reversals, right? He turns the tables, he brings down, he brings up, okay? He brings people that are up, he brings them low. People that are low, he brings them up. This is his pattern. This is how God operates. This is what he does, and she's banking on that. So as we're learning about prayer, as we move through this, we see that she understands that God operates a certain way and her prayer request she's not going to delete it or ignore it she still has a prayer request but she's submitting that into this operation now God can wield his ability to reverse fortunes because he has the right to and we see that toward the end of her prayer right there at the end of verse 8 he does this, he does that. He does this, he does that, right? He brings low, he raises. Right? He does this, he does that. He does all these reversals. Why? And the verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Okay, so imagine the earth is founded on pillars, the foundations. It's not saying that the earth is, if you go out in outer space and look, there's columns underneath the earth. She's not. But she's saying, metaphorically, the architect that built the building of the earth set it on pillars because he's the builder. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So her logic for what gives God the right to make somebody wealthy poor and make somebody poor wealthy? What gives God that right? He made all the wealth. He made technology, he made our minds, he made our brains, he made cars, he made buildings Like through extension by giving man these abilities. He made mountains, he made streams, everything in the earth, all of its elements, all of its physical laws, they're all gods. That gives him the right. And so what she's saying is we need to, when we come before the Lord, we need to recognize, hey, uh, we're, we're not asking somebody for help with our world We're trying to fit our story into his world. And that is a big difference in prayer. Now, how does he use that ability to reverse fortunes? He's able to reverse fortunes. And she's coming before him, basically praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because earth is yours too. You built it, you created it. Now, as she prays that, And we're following her along, we are probably thinking uh, a couple things. One thing, you may have thought of it already, is, uh, boy, I'm not sure if this is always true. I know of of an awful lot of rich, wicked people that are still rich on their dying day. And I can think of a lot of poor, faithful people that are still poor in, in their dying day. And this is just a reminder that what she's talking about is patterns, not promises in every single instance. I mean, the the Proverbs operate this way, right? Here's all the ways you'll be blessed if you live this way. And the Proverbs aren't saying, for sure, without a doubt, if you live this way, it's plug and play, right? If you live this way, bloop, what pops out is this blessing. Not always, but sometimes we're so allergic to that prosperity gospel thinking If you give money to the church, God will put money in your bank account, right? If you're faithful to church, God will do something in your house. That that, that sort of one-for-one correspondence where God kind of becomes a a celestial vending machine. All you do is put in certain coins and out comes the gumballs you want, right? And that is wrong. But sometimes we push against that too hard where we don't approach God for anything. He's not a celestial gumball machine, but he's also not a far-off deity that doesn't care and we don't take things to him, right? So what the Psalms, the Proverbs, this prayer teach us is we bank on God's patterns without demanding that he has to do it in my instance. Does that make sense? So how would I counsel someone who's barren, they want to have kids, they come to me and they're like, man, I'm reading Hannah's story. Do I just pray that and and I get the child? I don't want to say all you have to do is pray her prayer verbatim and call me next week when the pregnancy test shows that God is faithful. I'm not going to say that. But nor am I going to be like, that prayer has nothing to do with prayer. It was a specific situation. It's Old Testament, so who cares anyway? I'm not going to say that. What am I going to say? I'm going to say, take that smaller prayer, ask God to plug it into his bigger purposes. Lord, could you have a bigger purpose in my having a child? Beyond just me just really, really wanting one. Could you have a bigger kingdom purpose for that? Do that. This is why Jesus taught us to pray before you ask your request. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I really have a prayer request. Just hold off a second. Hang out there for a second. Hallowed be your name, not my name, not the O'Neill name. Your name, your kingdom come, not my family. Increase your table, not the seats around my table right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then I can come and say, but if there's a way to incorporate and use my small situation for that bigger purpose, would you do that? You can pray that. You can pray the specific thing and ask God to use it in his bigger thing. And that's good. Not just good. I think this is what we're taught to do. And then we trust him with the answer, don't we? If a child doesn't come immediately or that new job doesn't come immediately or that thing that you're trying to get unstuck in your life doesn't come immediately, we don't just go, well, I guess 1 Samuel 2 isn't true then. Oh, no, it's true, but it's God's prerogative to do it either now or ultimately later. When we walk through the book of Revelation, didn't we see we're more than conquerors? And some of those that chanted, hey, we are more than conquerors, are people that got killed in this life. Right, They lost everything, and they're more than conquerors? How is that possible? Because if God doesn't fulfill it on this side, he will fulfill it on that side. And it's God's prerogative to figure out. He's the one writing the story. I don't want to snatch the pen from his hand and act like I can start making some edits. He is the author of the grand story, and he's the author of our individual stories. And when we ask him, could you make my chapter look a little more like this for the benefit of the bigger story? We just have to trust that he makes the decisions to know what what constitutes a better story. And Hannah is approaching the Lord like that. Why? Because verse 3, she's not praying arrogantly. She's praying with humility. Now, here's the other question that we need to address and which the prayer is about to address now. If God likes to operate in this way, he takes the arrogant, humbles them. He takes the humble, exalts them. He takes the rich, makes them poor, etc. He likes to do these reversals, okay? And that's his pattern. Who does he like to do that for? Shouldn't that be the next question? If this is how God operates, and I don't want to be on the wrong side of the ledger, I don't want to be pushed down, I, I'd, I'd rather be lifted up. I don't know about you, I'd rather be lifted up than pushed down. Who does God do that for? Verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. He'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. We have two groups here, don't we? Who are the two groups? On one side, the faithful ones, and on the other side, the wicked. Which ones do you think he which one do you think he puts down? I hate to keep referring to the book of Revelation, but I'm gonna just milk it for all we got because we spent so many weeks in it. <laughs> you know, yes, the wicked. <laughs> the wicked get put down. Jesus is riding his right horse and all that, right? But the ones that he wants to lift up are the faithful ones. Now it may not be today, it may not be next week, it might not look how you want it to look. But in the end, you will be vindicated. And those that mock you for following God, those who deride you for following God, they will be the ones cut off in darkness. Next question. What makes somebody faithful versus wicked? Doesn't the Bible say we're all wicked? <laughs> well, look at, what, look at how she finishes that line. For not by might shall a man prevail. Okay, so if you go through the whole prayer, you've got people, the wicked, all right? And what's wicked about them is that they trust in their bows, they trust in their strength, they trust in their bread, they trust in their productivity, right? This is my stuff, this is my, I I did this. Whereas the weak people can't say that. They're they're put into a place where they can't say that. They can't say, I have. They can't say, me, mine. There is nothing theirs. And so this is why people misunderstand this. Scripture doesn't promise salvation to poor people and promise hell for rich people. But there's lots of passages that sound like that's what Scripture says. Why? Because... When you are wealthy, you are comfortable, and when you're comfortable, you don't need God. And you start tricking yourself in your mind to think, this is my stuff. You don't know what it's like to gasp for air, so you take breath for granted. Poor person is not like that poor person is forced and driven to their knees because if they don't get food, they're going to die. And they don't know how else to get it except to ask the Lord for it. And so they beg him for mercy. And and it's not the bank account that God is looking for. It's the heart. The person that goes, I am feeble and I'm at my wit's end. I have nothing. All I have is yours. Would you have your way with me? I mean, the rich man and Lazarus, it wasn't Rich man, bad. Lazarus, good. It was about dependency upon God versus I don't care about God. Proven in how he doesn't care about people. And so that scripture is not saying to have money is wrong, but it's a warning. It is a warning. Your biggest temptation this, this life won't be your disappointments. They'll be your successes. Because those are the ones that trick you and deceive you into thinking you need God less. Whereas the pressures in your life, the difficulties in in your life, the things that put your life on pause, on hold, make you question what you're doing, who you are, the life unraveling type of stuff, those are the things that God uses to put you spiritually where you need to be to depend on him. And we can be thankful for that. We wouldn't have Hannah's prayer if she weren't barren. We wouldn't have Samuel if she weren't barren. Would we have David if she weren't barren? Would we have the Davidic promise of the coming king if she weren't barren? She didn't see all that in the moment. She just had pain in front of her in the moment. But God is writing this better story, and she trusted it. So when she says not by might does man prevail, that is the difference maker. Wicked people think that they prevail on their own might, and faithful people do what they put their faith in God's might. That's what a believer looks like. And those are the people that God wants to exalt. And the wicked are the ones that he wants to bring down. So verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Penina was making fun of me. But what she was basically doing, what she's basically saying is Penina was basically taking jabs at. Ha, the Lord must be mad at you and the Lord must be super pleased with me because look at what I can do. He must not be that pleased with you because look what you can't do, or something like that. And that fits the pattern of how God's adversaries operate. And so verse 10, they're not adversaries just of you. Jesus said, they'll hate you because they hate me. Actually, they're not hating you. They're hating me. You're just taking the brunt of it. But really, they're against me. And so that's what she's telling in verse 10. These adversaries, they're actually adversaries of the Lord and they will be broken to pieces and against them he will thunder in heaven. And the only reason why, brothers and sisters, we don't cower in fear in front of God's thunderous voice is because, do you remember in the Old Testament when God's voice spoke like thunder and the the earth was quaking and the people went to Moses, like, how about you talk to him Because if he talks to us, we're all going to die. How about you become a mediator between us so that we can have a relationship with him, but we don't have to suffer the thunder stuff? Hello? Do we have a mediator that allows us to approach the throne and not be worried about a thunder voice? It's not that he doesn't have a thunder voice. It's that the thunder in the voice has been taken by Christ himself so that we can pray with boldness and we can ask him for the grace that we need in our time of need and not have to worry about that I deserve it this week, that I earn it this month. But on the laurels of Christ himself, we can approach that throne in prayer. It is amazing that we don't pray more than we do. And I include myself in that. If I get one rebuke in heaven, it's probably going to be like, why you had the access to prayer? Why didn't you do more of it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I don't know. Probably because I think I'm all that. Probably because all I have to do is, when I fly to London, I'm just going to grind out this PhD. I'm going to pound it, pound it. i got to think about vocab. I've th- I got to think about education. i got to think about, th- do you do that? I'm going to work my way out of this situation at work. I'm going to work this, my way out of my situation in my marriage. I'm going to figure out how to fix my kids. Good luck with that. Not by your parenting might, not by your ability to teach, not by your ability to run an awesome meeting at work, not by your ability to climb the ranks in the corporate ladder. That's your might. Uh, We we have to be good stewards of our gift, but while we're doing that, we're training our minds and hearts to put our faith completely in God. And God, if you want this promotion, if you want this house, if you want this church, if you want this degree, you do it. I don't want to be your adversary I want to cling to my Savior who is the perfect mediator so that I don't get the the danger and the thunder of heaven. That the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That's true. But he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We need to wrap up now, but could you think of a better way to end this prayer? The king if you're reading through scripture, you're like, what king? We haven't gotten there yet. This isn't first Kings, second kings. We haven't gotten to that chapter yet where Saul is anointed and David's anointed. We're not there yet. So this is why some scholars, God bless them, you know, they, they look at it and they're like, well, this must be a prayer that was written way later. And then some author is taking it saying, oh, Hannah prayed it, you know. no, 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 no. no. That's operating on the assumption that Hannah doesn't know as much as you think Hannah knows. And maybe Hannah knows more than you think she knows. There are verses like in Genesis 17, Genesis 49, where this king idea was forecasted, in Numbers 24, in Numbers, uh, s- several times in Numbers 24. And then specifically, if you just write one of them down, Deuteronomy 17. Okay? So here, you're not out of the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's, it's, forecasting this idea of a coming king. And then you remember, I talked about it last week, when you read through the book of Judges, they didn't have a king. And the author of the book of Judges say, this is a problem four different times. They didn't have a king, they didn't have a king. They did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because they didn't have a king. And so the follow-up to the book of Judges is like, so are we are going to get a king or what? I don't know. Well, it starts with a barren woman. He's not going to be the king, but he's going to be the one that anoints a king. We don't know that yet. We're going to see that as the story plays out. But right there embedded in her prayer, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed one. Who's that? Well, you start going through and then you see Saul and you're like, oh, maybe it's Saul. Uh, Doesn't take long before you're like, "Nah, nah, nah, not Saul. Oh, David. Yes, the giant killer. The shepherd turned king. That is awesome. Don't we love that story? Someone who doesn't come from the establishment, right? The outsider that we want to vote for maybe, okay? That's David, and he's king? And then, oh, wait, Bathsheba. Hmm. Absalom. Problems. But then you start moving through Scripture, and you're like, well, not David, but a Davidic king, someone in that line that's going to come. Yes, it's Jesus. Sometimes the Sunday school answer is correct, (laughs) right? It is Jesus. He is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect king who will judge the ends of the earth. But if you are with him and on his side and underneath him, then you escape the judgment. In the meantime, you pray prayers like this. You take your smaller thing and you lift it to the Lord and ask him to do something with it in his larger thing. When we are harassed for being God's faithful people, we can lean on the Lord in prayer. We can ask God to reverse the situation that just seems so foolish to people who are wicked. That's so dumb. You're giving to the church. Why don't you give to something worthwhile? You're talking to your elders about it. Why don't you go to the support group that I've got? You know, Why do you spend all this time at church? Well, you should be doing this over here. But when we're harassed in those ways for being God's faithful people, Scripture's calling us to lean on the Lord in prayer, asking him to reverse the situation, knowing that in the bigger picture, he's already reversed the grand situation. He's already reversed our biggest problem. And you know what that is? Moving us from the wicked column to the faithful column. I mean, if he only did that, does anything else matter? Not really. But still, he wants to continue proving that pattern in our lives. And it might be by removing that trial, reversing that thing that you're facing, reversing that thing that you're going through or redeeming it in some way. He does it over and over and over again, but we don't demand it. We ask him for it, but we situate it in this bigger thing. This bigger thing allows me to go, even if you don't answer the small thing, I so appreciate this. It's all good. And if you do answer this small thing, answer it in a way that moves this thing along. The big story of what you're doing in the world through your son, Jesus Christ, advancing his kingdom and making all the earth yours. Let's pray.